Stay gold, pony boy. That line is about as iconic as it gets, and I've got to admit, for the last 28, well, almost 29 years of my life, I've been hearing it dropped in various pop culture moments without ever being entirely sure of its original context. Well, all that changed as I prepared for episode 56 of the podcast. Today, we're talking all about S.E. Hinton's 1967 novel, The Outsiders. In case you missed it, that's where we got Stay Gold's Pony Boy. Ponyboy himself is the youngest member of a gang called the Greasers in mid-60s Tulsa. If we want to go really cliche with this, you might say that the Greasers are from what you might call the wrong side of the tracks. They come from low-income families, and many of them operate without any adult supervision at all. Most of them also happen to put a lot of grease in their long hair, but that's really not very important. The Greasers are constantly butting up against the Soches, aka the rich kids in town. While Ponyboy wants to keep up with his fellow Greasers, particularly his older brothers, Soda Pop and Dairy, who have become his only family since the death of their parents, he has a softer side, and it's clear from the beginning of The Outsiders that there's a world in which he could grow apart from the gang and go on to college and a better life, if he wants to. Along with Johnny, another greaser, Ponyboy gets caught up in an especially dicey situation with the Soches and the police. The boys go into hiding, only to find themselves worse off than ever when the church they're living in catches on fire. Johnny sustains life-threatening injuries while trying to save a group of children from the burning building. As a result, the boys are forced to contend with big ideas of loss, love, legacy, and whether or not the grass really is always greener on the other side. We get into more details of the plot in the episode you're about to hear, but we also talk about the fascinating way in which The Outsiders presents masculinity and its continued relevance in a 2019 in which violence against marginalized communities and teens is all too common. We also chat about the fascinating publishing history of this book. Did you know that Essie Hinton was just a teenager when it was published and that yes, she was a teenaged girl? We also talk about the cultural conversation around The Outsiders, as well as its film adaptation, which basically stars anyone who is anyone in the 80s. My guest for this episode is Esther Zuckerman. Esther is a senior entertainment writer at Thrillist. Check out her work and pop culture commentary on Twitter at EasyWrites. If you're interested in pop culture and entertainment even a little bit, she's a really fun follow. I like to think that SSR is also a pretty fun follow. We're on Twitter and Instagram at SSRPod, and you can find us on Facebook by searching The SSR Podcast. There's lots of content to check out on the SSR website, too. Go to www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes, merch, and the recently launched SSR blog. Click support at the top of the page to learn how you can become a Patreon sponsor. A big thank you goes out to all the Patreon sponsors tuning in now. Thanks also to those of you who have been checking out Libro FM. I feel really proud to be able to share their mission with you. If you're new to Libro FM, here's how it works. It lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. Choose from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know who I'm talking about. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. SSR listeners can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter code SSRPOD when prompted. I love supporting my favorite Brooklyn indie, Books Are Magic when I get my audiobooks from Libro.fm. If you're loving the show, please don't forget to subscribe, share it on Instagram stories, share it with a friend in real life, and leave a five-star rating and review on iTunes. I absolutely love creating these new episodes for you every week, and it's even more fun when I see that our community is growing. Let's spread that SSR love. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Allie Hoff-Kosick. 
freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Esther. Welcome to SSR. Hi, Allie. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Listeners, I have I have to tell you that this is, I think, a, a reunion like 12 years in the making, maybe? Yeah, I feel like it's sort of appropriate because we probably last saw each other when we were a little bit older, but like vaguely around the SSR reading age. So Yeah, <laughs> and a- around this time of year, too. So Esther and I met in 2007. We were... Yeah. Rising seniors in high school. We were at mm-hmm. a journalism program at Northwestern, which I think I've mentioned on the podcast before. Were we in the same group? Like, I think we were in the same. I think we were the same. Group. I think so. I can't remember. It all. It's all such a blur. But. It was so long ago, but we. I remember we had like you know the storied like toughest professor was our yes, guy, yes. and it was so intimidating. So we spent a lot of time together, and I think we met like once or twice after that during like the college application process. We were yeah. In we tried to stay in touch, but then we went to different places and life happens. Well, and here we are. Thanks to SSR. Yeah. Now back, back in New York and both, you know. Reading, writing, reading. doing all the things that we always love to do. Well, I'm so grateful for your time. Thank you for reading this book with me. Thank you for spending time on a Monday morning, listeners. Esther's spending her Monday morning with me, which I really appreciate. Um, and we're talking about The Outsiders. So, Esther, I kind of know why you picked this book because we were going back and forth yeah. about what you wanted to read. Um, but I'd love if you would share a little bit with the listeners about why this was your pick. Yeah. Uh, so you gave me a couple of options and then I suggested a different option, which we didn't end up doing because I was sort of thinking you, one of the options you suggest was the outsiders. And it's one of those books that I have such a vivid rem- memory of the cover, not the edition that I bought to read, which has this very sort of glamorous art photography. Uh, but it was a sort of, you know, it was this beautiful cover with the main boys on front. But I honestly, for the life of me, cannot remember whether I actually (laughs) read it or not. But a lot of the lexicon from the book, a lot of the sort of hallmarks of it have entered my brain just simply because it's so iconic. I've seen so many references to Stay Gold Pony Boy over the years that it was one of those things where I was like, did I actually read that. And I think one of the reasons that I maybe didn't was, and I know you've talked about this on the podcast before, was the sort of girl boy book dichotomy. Mm -hmm. And I think when I was younger, like that cover, you know, with all the like tough young men was a little bit isolating, but then reading about Essie Hinton and one of the reasons why she wrote it, it, it's all really interesting. So I was glad to have picked it and I was glad to have read it and or reread it because I honestly cannot remember. <laughs> it didn't jog your memory like reading it now? I remember little bits, but I honestly, I honestly don't. I think I did it, but I can't remember. Okay. <laughs> I, like, I did have it. I know I had it. Okay. I did not read it. I think that this is a book that's assigned in a lot of schools, but it's also Mm -hmm. kind of controversial. I was doing some reading about um, how frequently it's banned. I believe it was number 38 on the ALA's top 100 most challenged books, maybe of the 90s, because there is a lot of drinking. There's violence. There's what I guess some might consider strong language, you know, to us (laughs) in 2019. Like, this certainly doesn't feel like strong language. So I feel like schools probably come down. Strong language. Exactly. Like, like, gritty for sure, but Mm -hmm. definitely not particularly like 
controversial by our standards. So I think schools probably come down very sort of on these two polarized sides, like either looking at it as this great work of literature or like kind of pushing it away because it's controversial. And, And my high school was fairly conservative. And so I would imagine that maybe that's why I didn't read it. But I got messages from a bunch of teachers who listened to the show um, when I posted that I was reading the book for the for the podcast and they were like oh my gosh this is my favorite book to teach it's made so many of my students readers who weren't readers before so it's definitely like still a favorite among teachers so I certainly didn't read it I echo your thoughts about that boy girl book dichotomy thing yeah and to be completely honest I had like similar feelings going into reading it as an adult like it's amazing (laughs) how that like carries over yeah I'm not proud of it but getting ready to read it I was like oh I don't know that I want to read this like I'm not going to be able to relate to the story of these like teen boys but then when I was assured by all of these listeners that they love it so much I got excited and I'm glad that I read it because I really enjoyed it yeah me too yeah I think that's one of the things that's interesting about reading it in sort of as an adult and also in the 21st century one of the things that I was reading about is like the weird tangent to start immediately but there's a lot of like slash fic fanfic online about these characters and the idea that like that it is so universally appealing even for young girls sort of like seeing themselves in these characters in these boys maybe like taking it to a level that even Essie Hinton herself doesn't necessarily agree with I was really glad to have sort of sat down with it this past weekend yeah so you mentioned fan fiction as of 2017 and according to the New York Times there were 8,100 stories based on the book on fanfiction.net and also to your point earlier about sort of the pervasiveness of the outsiders in all kinds of pop culture and in even just the way we talk to each other. Um, again, as of 2017, the hashtag stay gold was attached to more than 300,000 Instagram posts. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, I think like one of the uh, reference touchstones that I remember about the book was um, a Gilmore Girls episode. Yes. Like, I think it was like in the first season, one of the very early, uh, Rory is talking to Dean before he was in turned into a complete idiot about her first days at Chilton and she's talking about like being an outsider and she's like uh did you ever see the outsider she's talking about the movie which is sort of iconic in its own right for myriad reasons and he's like yes and she says just call me pony boy that's one of those moments that's like stuck in my head being like a giant fan and now currently writing about movies and TV for a living. Yeah, that stake old line has showed up in a lot of TV shows over the years. I feel like I want to say maybe somebody says it in the office at one mm-hmm. at one point. Like it definitely has jogged my memory about all the times that I've heard yeah. it in other contexts. I want to talk a little bit more about Essie Hinton because we've mentioned yeah. her a little bit, but she's fascinating. And the story of her writing this book is worth a discussion on totally. its own. So Her pen name is Essie Hinton, but her name is Susan Eloise Hinton. And sadly, but sort of not surprisingly, her editor in the 60s was like, we think maybe you should just use your initials because we don't want to alienate boy readers if they think that this book about a bunch of teenage boys was written by a girl or a woman really a girl because she was because she was and she started 17. writing it yeah she was 15 when it, she started writing it right and yeah. then it came out when she was 17 yeah I think she she started it when she was 15 she wrote the bulk of it when she was like 16 17 and then it was mm-hmm. published when she was 18 she had no intention of it being published she had actually failed a creative writing class 
the yeah. sophomore year, which, you know, of course, I feel like you hear those kinds of stories all the time. And then she gave it to her friend's mom to read. And it was her friend's mom who reached out to an agent on her behalf because she was like, more people need to read this. This is really good. And that's how the whole thing happened. That's yeah. how she became Essie Hinton. But I just found her really fascinating. And I, I was doing some research about her and why she writes the way that she writes. And I mean, she's so young now. She's only like 70, um, which yeah. blows my mind because I feel like so often we get these books that feel like classics and the authors aren't around anymore. And this yeah. book feels like such a classic. she's so young. Yeah. And she's still alive and writing and doing her thing. Um, but I was really curious about the fact that she writes about boys, especially mm-hmm. as a young teenage girl. I thought it was really interesting that she was really interested in like getting in, in the heads of these, these yeah. kids. And I found a quote from her website that said, I started using male characters just because it was easiest. I was a tomboy. Most of my close friends were boys. And I figured nobody would believe a girl would know anything about my subject matter. I have kept on using male characters because one, boys have fewer books written for them. Two, girls will read boys books. Boys usually won't read girls. And three, it is still the easiest for me. I thought that I found that quote as well. And I thought that because we were talking about it earlier, the idea that um, sort of writing for an audience of boys who don't necessarily read as much and sort of drawing them in was really interesting and sort of spoke to the weirdness of, I think, the way that we approached this book as uh, kids, which is like, oh, wow, like, that's a real, that's a real boy book um, type right. of thing. But like, it is really interesting that, that she was even thinking about that throughout her entire career, sort of drawing young men into the idea of reading by presenting these tough characters. But on the other hand, one of the things that I was reading that sort of constantly pops up when you're reading about her work is the vulnerability in it. Like the idea that these sort of tough guys, there's both T-O-U-H and T-U-F-F in the book are very emotional. They cry all the time. They're really, almost all of the characters have even some, even a character like Dally, who's incredibly tough, ha- like breaks down at some point. None of the characters sort of keep the facade of masculinity up all the time, which is really interesting, especially given the idea that like this is like the toughest of the tough, this greaser and that era. Yeah, I found that really interesting too. I found a quote in the New York Times that said, What may be most remarkable about the greasers is their ability to show great affection and emotion despite mm-hmm. the masculine dominated culture norm of the 1960s. In almost every Every chapter, someone is crying or on the verge of tears. And then there was a quote from the Books for Youth editor at Booklist, which said, you'd be hard-pressed to find a book where boys are this emotional. They're crying, they're embracing, they're holding each other in bed. And that struck me, too. I think, you know, we spend a lot of time on the podcast, but also out in the world these days, kind of talking about the way masculinity is portrayed in different pieces of art and in different forms of pop culture. And this is a form that I, quite frankly, hadn't really seen before. Like, I've never read a book where boys or grown men are portrayed in such an emotional way. And I thought it was really interesting because when Ponyboy is having a conversation with Cherry at the Mm -hmm. drive-in, who's this so girl so she has money and she dates sort of like the quote-unquote like rich suave guys yeah the way she delineates between her gang and the greasers is by talking about how like oh greasers are just inherently more emotional like we socias we just have this expectation where we have to be cool all the time and i i guess i've never really thought about like toughness 
T-O-U-G-H-ness in that sense as sort of like this form of being emotional. I guess when I think about like that hyper-masculine in a very heteronormative sort of way, like when I think about that, I don't think about emotional, but I guess you could argue that like the ways in which that sort of masculinity is expressed is sort of inherently like coming from a place of really passionate feeling. Yeah, definitely. Um, wow, my brain just like went to a bunch of different Boom. places. <laughs> like, no, um, one of the things that it is interesting to think about, and this sort of brings me back to a weird connection, but I think that's one of the reasons when you talk about like the fan fiction and especially like the slash fiction that it comes up so much because like, especially for girls reading it, like they want to see these boys in the book, like if they're that emotional and that vulnerable, sort of expressing sort of even more love to one another, which Mm -hmm. I think is really interesting. And then to counter that, one of the things is that I, that sort of pops up is there has been a sort of common theory and a common reading that like perhaps Johnny and Dally are in love. And that's one of the reasons. And Essie Hinton sort of through no malice has sort of come out on her Twitter, which is a very active Twitter account. Mm -hmm. Um, She's a big fan of Supernatural and, and said like, no, I did. I did not write them as gay. That wasn't even in my vocabulary in the 1960s when I was writing this. Basically, she said like, I'm fine with interpretations, however you want, but like that was not the intention in writing it. But it's interesting, the idea that, like, even still, we don't really know how to discuss heterosexual masculinity sort of portrayed this way. Right, and we we don't know how to discuss the possibility that two guys could just be such best friends and, like, adore and respect and love each other that maybe there's no sexual tension there's no romantic connection going yeah. on between them and I didn't really pick up on that sort of I didn't either I didn't pick up it was on most it after the fact until, when I was reading around yeah same I was reading some articles um and then I I went back through and was just like pulling out some excerpts maybe for us to talk about today and after I had like read all of this commentary and I, I started pulling out some of the quotes that had to do with Dally and Johnny and I was like I, I guess I get it I mean there is sort of this like there's just a difference in the way that Dally, who is this really tough, intense, kind of scary guy, the way that he regards Johnny is so different than the way that he regards anybody else. And so to that extent, I totally get it. And I think that there is always a temptation in a book like this where there's no outright love Love. story. Like you want to find it. I get that. I didn't read it that way myself the first time. I actually liked the fact that Dally was just so protective of Johnny. To me, it just seemed like they were sort of all that each other had, and that was where the love came from. Definitely. So let's kind of start at the beginning a little bit. Um, Though it's never explicitly stated, the book takes place in 1965 in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is where Essie Hinton grew up. Um, Much of sort of this, like, tension between the greasers and the socias is based on the gangs that she saw in her own school, though apparently she was not part of either group. And Ponyboy, our narrator, is part of the greasers, but he's sort of, like, greaser-like. He's the kinder, softer greaser. Well, I mean, I think one of the reasons is he's younger than the rest of the characters. He's supposed to be 14. So I think what's interesting about him as a narrator is he's someone who, I mean, I I definitely think there is this 
a trope that a lot of things have followed where like the the guy who reads, he's smarter than he's smarter than it's interesting to think about the fact that she was writing it when she was, when she was in high school, because so many of the sort of like literary touchstones, it feels sometimes a little bit like a high school paper, Hmm. um, not in a bad way, not in a bad way and not in an in elegant way, but the way she incorporates other literature at times, I, I definitely felt that in my writing when I was a kid. Like I was like, "Oh my god, I love this book. I love this poem. I want to reference it in my work in this very sort of like explicit way." Um, right. Like, how many essays in high school did I start with quotes? Right. Right. From, like, and I feel a book like, or a famous person. And I don't think she's, I mean, and I, like, it's literally not a knock on it all. It's no. just like reading it and knowing that she was, knowing that she was 16, you can almost feel like, you can almost feel that like she was so excited about the, about the other stuff that she was reading that she funneled that into Pony Boy, who loves to read. He's good at school. He's younger than the other greasers. So he sort of is at this crossroads. He basically gets to make a choice about his future in a way that the other characters do not necessarily, if that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah, totally. And his brothers in particular don't have a choice, especially his oldest brother, Derry, who has assumed all this responsibility for not only Pony Boy, but the middle brother, whose name is Soda Pop, which I love. Yeah. (laughs) And Derry seemed to kind of have, like, some similar interests to Pony Boy. Like, we we hear about how he was super smart and really successful in school. I think he had won a bunch of awards when he graduated. He was a football player. He was, he was, he could have gone to college if he had the choice, but their parents died when they were very young. And he sort of took on raising his younger brothers. I, I think there's a line where uh, Pony Boy says, like, he could have gone to college and sort of left us to a home, which is sort of the constant threat in their lives. But instead, he dedicated himself to them. And that sort of forced him into this mold of greaser. And he's kind of going to get stuck. And unlike Soda Pop, who just, like, loves everything and is enthusiastic about everything in life, yeah, Derry, I don't think would choose to be a greaser. Soda Pop has kind of embraced the lifestyle. He's grown out his hair. He's really proud of, like, having the look of the rest of the gang. And he loves his friends so much. Whereas Derry, like, kind of keeps everybody a little bit more at arm's distance. Like, I think if he'd had the opportunity to go to college, he maybe wouldn't have missed everybody very much. No, but he also has sort of taken on this, uh, for lack of a better term, like, den mother identity where, you know, he's very strict with Pony Boy, but he also opens up their house to the other greasers and adjacent to sort of their specific gang, the uh, um, the shepherds and these other sort of um, adjacent gangs that if somebody from their community needs a place to crash, their house is open. It's it's very much like sort of very nice idea that these kids came from like terrible homes and if they needed a place to sleep, that house was there for them. I love the details about their house. One of my favorite things about the Curtis family was the chocolate cake detail. I don't know yeah. if you remember this, but yeah. Ponyboy is kind of talking later in the book about what's in their refrigerator and what they typically... He's making breakfast. Yeah, what they typically have for breakfast. And he talks about, you know, the thing that all of us have in common is that we all love chocolate cake. So we always have chocolate cake on hand. And if we happen to be out, then one of them will just, like, casually whip up a chocolate cake, which I just loved. And again, like, talking about 
what we typically see as a portrayal of intense hypermasculinity, you don't get like dudes going out to make each other chocolate cakes or or even like making each other breakfast on a daily basis. So I love the fact that these brothers are taking really loving, thoughtful care of each other in a way that nobody's making fun of it. Nobody's questioning it. It's just this very kind, loving household where they're all doing everything they can to make each other happy and comfortable. And I loved that. I also thought that this book was sort of an interesting commentary on birth order, which I'm always fascinated about. Um, And Derry being the oldest, sort of assuming all the responsibility without asking questions. Like, it doesn't seem like he even wondered whether or not he should just kind of, like, give up everything that he had going for him and take care of his brothers. He just did it. And then you have Bonnie Boy, who is sort of, I don't want to say he's spoiled because that's the wrong word but he's definitely everybody's very careful around him in Mm -hmm. a way that I think a lot of younger children can relate to and Soda Pop is like sort of your classic middle child like he fallen through the cracks in some ways he dropped out of school he is just kind of like living his life and I think a lot of middle children unfortunately find themselves in that situation where like they don't feel like they're getting the kind of attention that they wish that they could have and so they make some of their own decisions and that's not a knock on middle children because I'm married to one and I love my middle Mm -hmm. sister that's just sort of like the literature on middle children is that often they find themselves in that kind of a situation and I thought that the three brothers in this book painted that pretty well yeah I feel like I don't have much of an opinion on all of that because I was an only child. Yes. <laughs> that's my, and that's my, but I, the, the breakfast detail is, is so sort of nice and specific and sort of speaks to that too, because one of the things that's so great about the whole section is both the chocolate eggs detail, but also how they each like their eggs yes. done is did I say chocolate eggs? I meant chocolate cake. Chocolate, um, chocolate eggs could be interesting, though. I was like, did I well, miss that? <laughs> no. Like, Dairy likes them in a bacon and tomato sandwich. Pony Boy likes them hard. And Soda Pop eats his with grape jelly, which is sort of revolting. And <laughs> I don't know if anyone, not to offend anyone, <laughs> how they like their eggs. But the idea that Soda Pop eats the eggs with grape jelly and then has cake on the side, just sort of like consuming all this sugar, uh, the other really nice details sort of about soda pop is his love of horses and Mm -hmm. this palomino that he longed after that was not his but he sort of cared for as his own and then got taken away like you have like it's weird because like soda pop isn't even like that big of a character it's interesting I guess one of the things that surprised me is how long the book actually leaves most of the creatures behind there's the like the the longer section with just pony boy and johnny sort of in the middle but the idea that soda pop is so well drawn and so sort of like this weirdly like the sort of consummate innocent in a way like love sugar pines after this horse pines after this girl who's left him behind um is so well drawn and so heartbreaking yeah he's a hopeless romantic about a lot of things he sort of just embraces life in the ways that he wants to just the fact like you said he eats eggs and jelly for breakfast he doesn't care what that looks like to anybody else you know I think what you said about the preferences with the eggs is really interesting too because in my house growing up we don't make multiple forms of eggs like you get the kinds of eggs that are being made and so the fact that these boys 
are taking the care to like make each person their individual egg dish. That's yeah. making an egg sandwich that takes a little bit more time than just scrambling an egg. So they just really do show such care and consideration for what each brother wants and needs. And I, yeah. I loved that detail. Definitely. So a lot of the action of the book is kicked off by Derry really. And Derry's frustration with Pony Boy. Derry has been mm-hmm. left to be responsible for these brothers and he's doing the best he can as an oldest sibling I understand this frustration where you really like want to take responsibility and you want to do right by your parents but sometimes it's exhausting and I can't imagine how horrible it must be to not only have to grieve your parents but also to feel this extremely heavy weight of like making sure that your little brothers who are living in in a tough neighborhood who are in a position where they could potentially really be taken off track like to make sure that that doesn't happen to honor your family that's really scary and stressful Derry's working two jobs like two very physical jobs he's tired all the time and pony boy is out with johnny one night and they fall asleep in a lot i think which is also kind of a rory gilmore yeah well um, it's the idea so. that the idea also that it, it sort of gets to johnny who's like the other i mean he is the stake old yeah. pony boy line but he comes from this sort of opposite environment where his parents are alive but totally unforgiving of him, sort of implied abusive um, in one way or another. And they're out. I, I think like even before that, there, this whole scene sort of at the drive-in movies, which sort of establishes the world and how the worlds in Tulsa of the greasers and the Soches interact and sort of bump up against one another where they're there and they meet Cherry Balance and her friend Marsha and there's this sort of antagonistic flirtation going on with Dally but Cherry sort of takes the shine to Pony Boy. Eventually her drunk shitty boyfriend shows up sort of scaring them away and Pony Boy and Johnny go to hang in the slot and then end up falling asleep sort of in the cold and Pony Boy runs home but I do I don't know I didn't want to stop at that drive-in sequence because I do think that's like it does a very good job of laying out the land for you um, in a way that the book does a little bit before but you really get a good sense of how these people are the same but different and how Cherry is only slightly older than Pony Boy but also a little bit condescending um, but also sort of attempting to understand their lifestyle and not cruel the way the other socias can be. And then that brings them to Ponyboy coming home late and Derry hitting him out of frustration. Which hasn't happened before. And Derry is, I think he really surprises himself with how angry he is. I think as adults who have consumed media from this era, I think that we can recognize that what the author is trying to show here is that Derry is so frustrated by maybe his potential inability to like parent Pony Boy in the way that he needs yeah. to, that he lashes out in this way, and that this is going to come out in a way that I don't necessarily want it to because I never want to equate hitting somebody with a demonstration of affection. But I think in this context, that's kind of what we're meant to believe that it is. Yeah, I think it is this idea of Derry being a parental figure and these kids living in a world with no parents. Obviously Pony Boys, Soda Pop and 
dairy did know their parents. It's not like their parents were never around, but like they've been existing in this universe without anyone. And dairy is attempting again, like I completely agree with you. You don't want to equip anything, but dairy is attempting to lay down the law and himself being like a 20 year old doesn't really know how to do that in, in any effective way. But you see sort of deeply, and especially it's interesting because like all the other kids like tell Pony Boy like, yeah, man, Derry really loves you. Right. And he doesn't understand that. And that, that is one of the things where you're like, come on, give your brother like a, a... Cut him some slack. Yeah, cut him some slack. That's literally the idiom I was looking for. <laughs> well, and I think it's hard because Pony Boy has these two. He has such contrast in his household, like the differences yeah. between Derry and Soda Pop. And Soda Pop is like so open about his feelings and Pony Boy feels like so safe in the knowledge that Soda loves him and appreciates him and gets him and all those things. And Derry is quite frankly like fucking exhausted. Like his life is exhausting. He's 20 years old. He's probably seen all of his friends go off and do cool things and achieve their potential. And he is just doing the best he can hanging by a thread. And he was probably so worried when Ponyboy didn't come home until two in the morning. And that was the only way that he knew to express himself. And again, like I think in this environment where there is violence, we hear a lot. And and in the end, we see actually a rumble. Like these boys do trade in violence. Violence and that's sort of their currency. And so even though Derry is not somebody who seems particularly fond of the violence that happened between these gangs, like that's what he knows. Yeah. But also the rumble is a sort of like, you know, we'll get to that in a second, but like it is sort of this organized form of violence where right. there are sort of these grim set of rules. But you also see basically from the start of the book that there's violence that doesn't exist within those confines. We know what happens to Johnny who gets beaten by these socias who turn out to be led by Terry's boyfriend. I mean, and I think this is what her, what Effie Hinton's like initial idea was like, she just wanted to write a story about a kid getting jumped walking home. He's walking home from a movie and he gets jumped. It, It like, it's even scarier than the idea of the rumble, which mm. everyone sort of willingly participates in and elects to and elects to go to. Um, the greasers are specifically targeted just for existing. Yeah, it's two very different forms of violence, and that's sort of what these kids have been absorbing. That's what Derry has absorbed, and unfortunately, um, he lashes out at Pony Boy in a really scary to Pony Boy way, which I understand. And Pony Boy runs away. He gets Johnny and they unfortunately get themselves into a whole other round of trouble that kicks off some even more serious consequences. They run into Bob, who, as we mentioned, is Cherry's boyfriend. He has a blue Mustang and that blue Mustang is reminiscent of the story that Johnny told about a very, very, very violent beating that he experienced at the hands of the socias several weeks prior, I think. And so as soon as the blue Mustang comes up as a reader, I was like, oh no, Johnny is going to be triggered, obviously, by the sight of these boys that completely attacked him. And again, like we're led to believe that Johnny is from a very violent household. And so for him to be even more traumatized by what happened with the greasers than by what he has to weather day in and day out at home is sort of an indication of like how terrible it was. I think Pony Boy says explicitly that like they'd seen Johnny in bad shape quite a bit, but it was nothing compared to what happened after he was jumped by the greasers. So Bob in his blue Mustang comes up and he tries to drown 
pony boy in a fountain. And yeah. It's sort of retaliation for hanging out with Cherry earlier right. in the night. They had seen them. They had sort of stopped them and it's retaliation. And he holds his head in this very, it's supposed to be very cold out as well. And Johnny in sort of an act of desperation, he, he had been carrying our knife around after he had gotten uh, beat up by the Soches sometime prior. And he stabs Bob and kills him. And he, he almost seems surprised, but he, it's like, it it was like a fit of rage that he did it. And it was like, oh shit, like I just killed him. We have to get out of here. And Pony Boy really like wants to, to figure out how he can help take responsibility for it. Yeah. Even though his face was in it, like he didn't see it happen. It it almost was like, as a reader, the experience is like all of a sudden Pony Boy comes to and realizes what's happened. And so Pony Boy and Johnny go find Dally because Dally does seem like the kind of guy that you want to have around in a moment like this. Like, he, he's been through some really tough stuff with other gangs, and so he's been in jail. And so he gives them a loaded gun and a bunch of money and, like, tells them to jump on this train and go hide in a church in a town called Windricksville. And the boys listen. They jump on this train, and they go and they spend the money on a few things, my favorite of which is a copy of Gone with the Wind. Johnny yeah. goes, and he's like, Pony, I, I know that you wanted to read this book. Like, I thought this would be a good way to pass the time, which, love. As a reader, you're easily like, yeah. You could just ditch your friend. Um, you have no cause. But the also the idea that, which gets to the sort of continued relevance of this book, that as a greaser, he knows that he would be targeted, even if he didn't see it happen, even if he was ultimately the victim in this situation. Just by being associated with the greasers, he has no leg to stand on. And I mean, I think that's one of the things that kept popping up. Obviously, this is a very separate thing. But you think about how the, the world exists today and violence against vacuum and police violence and the idea that it is a continued relevant for marginalized communities to be targeted. Um, and Pony Boy knows that even if he if he were to escape, he would be accused because even if though he had no weapon on him at all. Probably even if he was not accused in like a formal setting in a court of law, he probably would suffer so much more at the hands of the socials going forward. So yeah, it's sort of a no-win situation for him. So he goes with Johnny, they go to this church, and there's there's a chapter or two of them at the church kind of passing the time, and Ponyboy has never really gotten a chance to get to know Johnny properly. Johnny has sort of yeah. been a little bit mysterious to him, and so they really bond, which is, it's very sweet, actually. It made me really love both of these boys. I think Essie Hinton definitely gets to the heart of that like she wins yeah. the readers over with both Pony Boy and Johnny during that period of time. Um, Dally comes back and is basically like, "Why don't we go back?" Johnny decides he's going to turn himself in, but before they can successfully leave the church and head back to Tulsa they see that the building has caught on fire. And so much of this book, we're seeing the boys smoking and there are a few references to like, hopefully this doesn't catch on fire. Hopefully that yeah. doesn't catch on fire. So there's some serious, you know, there's some clues to what's going to happen. And Johnny and Ponyboy and Dally all jump inside the building because they hear there's kids stuck inside. Yeah, Dally's a little reluctant too. Yeah, Pony it's Boy definitely the, young, the younger boys leader. Sort of, and their kids stuck inside the church and they jump in and Dally sort of only does so out of like obligation <laughs> to follow them. Right. He wants to make sure that they don't get hurt. And I think, you know, I'm sure for Johnny, it's like this redemptive moment of like, I just took Bob's life. Maybe I can save somebody else's life. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have that much to lose. I'm sure from his perspective yeah. at this point. So he certainly wants to help these children. So they are very brave in jumping through the window. Um, mm-hmm. Pony boy, 
boy gets a hurt, but not terribly hurt enough that he ends up in the hospital. But when he wakes up in the hospital, he discovers that Dally is also there again, not super injured, but Johnny has had a piece of the church roof fall directly on his back while he was trying to get out. And he is in critical condition at the hospital. They wake up the next day and the newspapers are talking about these kids as heroes. They're being hailed as heroes for like an undisputable act of heroism. And they're almost forgiven in a way for anything that happened before. It's an interesting portrayal of how people get demonized and elevated in the media because suddenly they're these great kids, even though they know if they just go back to their homes they're like, and they go back on the streets, they're going to be vilified once again. This quote comes in later and it reveals uh, several things that go on, um, which we do spoilers on the podcast, as everybody knows. Unfortunately, both Johnny and Dally die, and we'll talk more yeah. about how that happens shortly. But I, while we're talking about this sort of hero concept, I wanted to share this quote from the book. Nobody would write editorials praising Dally. Two friends of mine had died that night, one a hero, the other a hoodlum. But I remember Dally pulling Johnny through the window of the burning church, Dally giving us his gun, although it could mean jail for him, Dally risking his life for us, trying to keep Johnny out of trouble. And now he was a dead juvenile delinquent, and there wouldn't be any editorials in his favor. Dally didn't die a hero. He died violent and young and desperate, just like we we all knew he'd die someday. Yeah. Ponyboy is going through the struggle of like coming to terms with the fact that Dally is never going to sort of have like the legacy that he deserves because yeah. Ponyboy's watched the fact that like Dally put himself on the line several times for Johnny and we talked about how much they love each other and nobody's ever going to know that and Ponyboy didn't really love Dally at the beginning like Dally was Ponyboy's least favorite of the gang and over the course of the book he kind of like comes to respect him even though he's not necessarily the kind of guy that Ponyboy himself ever wanted to be but I, I thought that that quote was really affecting just in like the way that Ponyboy is surveying everything that's gone on and realizing like the concept of legacy it almost makes you think of Hamilton like while we're going on crazy tangents like who lives who dies who tells your story and like there are stories that are not told and there are things that people will never know about yeah humans that deserve like a different reputation after they're gone well I also thought I mean one of the things that I thought of was after the death of Michael Brown um in in Ferguson um the the New York Times published a story and it got a, a lot of justified criticism where they called him no angel. And it was justified because it was like, this was the death of an unarmed teen and you're still sort of defining him who did not deserve to die. And you're still defining him by these angel demon terminologies. And back in, and in the sixties, Essie Hinton was writing about, obviously not specifically about racial violence, class violence, but she was honing in on the same way that people get portrayed to this day. Yeah, that's very true. It's unfortunately very little has changed in the way that we talk about kids from marginalized communities, particularly after they're gone. So I think that that's a very good point. To close the loop on, on what happens to Johnny and to Dally, Johnny sort of not surprisingly based on what Ponyboy learns after waking up in the hospital, Johnny dies from his injuries, but not before he 
gives us that classic line, stay yeah. gold, pony boy. It's a reference to a poem by Robert Frost that pony boy shared with Johnny when they were hiding out in the church. And the interpretation there is that Johnny is encouraging pony boy like not to lose his sense of wonder about things like the sunset, which is something that really sets pony boy apart from a lot of the people yeah. in their community. Like I think Johnny recognizes that pony boy has an appreciation for like the little things in life, sort of like the youthful magic yeah. of the world. And he's really encouraging pony boy to hold on to that again i think that's like a reminder of the fact that even though johnny is only a year older than pony boy like pony boy is still very much the baby of the group and yeah he's allowed to be that he's yeah. allowed to be this way because he is and he doesn't sort of realize it but because he's protected by darian soda pop because he's protected by basically all the other members all the other greasers he's allowed to be someone who's still has time to think about the sunset the walls of life haven't closed in on him Yes. And it is interesting, like sort of back to what I was saying earlier about how, you know, putting that Robert Frost poem is, is like, it's so beautiful, but it does sort of remind me of the way you think as a teenager, like if as a teenager who loves literature, you're like, man, I gotta, I gotta incorporate this in some ways, even if there's like, maybe there's a sort of world where your actual your actual pony boy existing in the world might not have spurted a Robert Frost right. quote whole a Robert Frost poem like in full um in a sort of like moment of trauma right while hiding um, out for murder that, that's yeah. not necessarily the moment that you do a recitation of a Robert Frost poem. yeah but like what's so sort of incredible about how she writes is her transforming that into this line that's become more iconic in some ways than the thing from once it, whence it came. And that's just really sort of awe-inspiring in some ways that stay gold pony boy. You don't a lot of people don't even know the, the sort of literary antecedent in the book that has birthed stay gold pony boy. It's its own it's its own thing that exists in the world. Yeah, I kept anticipating it because I knew it was coming and mm-hmm. After Ponyboy reads the poem to Johnny, I was like, okay, Johnny's probably going to be the one to say it. And then as soon as Johnny was in the hospital, I was like, oh, no, it's going to be like his last word. So, I, yeah. you know, you kind of – when you have heard the line before and you know it's iconic, I think you're ready for it. But I'm sure she had no idea that that was going to be the line <laughs> yeah. that everybody yeah. remembered. But it's pretty cool that it is. So Johnny dies, and there's just all of these very powerful scenes with him at the end. His mom comes in sort of at the last minute and is giving the doctors a hard time and is like, I deserve to see my son. This is my reward for being his mother. But Johnny doesn't want to see her because, as we mentioned before, his parents are awful to him. There's also a moment where he talks to Ponyboy about all the times that he had thought about taking his own life because he was so unhappy. But he's realizing now, like, as he's on the threshold of death, that he actually has so much left to live for and there's so little that he's accomplished. And so those are all really powerful emotional moments. And it makes it all the more sad when Johnny dies. Dally, when he finds out that Johnny dies, essentially like loses his mind a bit and he takes off from the scene and um, the next thing we know he is calling the gang the greasers and telling them that he's robbed a store and he's running away and in some ways you kind of come full circle because in the same way that Ponyboy and Johnny had to like seek out a place to hide with Dally's help now we have Dally trying to seek out a place to help with Ponyboy and his brother's help and when they find Dally he is brandishing an unloaded gun at the police officers that have tracked him down. He's essentially committing suicide and he knows that brandishing a gun regardless of whether or not it has bullets in it will make the police shoot again something that 
yep. still remains incredibly relevant today. And he essentially commits suicide in this manner. It is this very symbolic and upsetting manner in the sense that, like, it's an unloaded gun. He's, he's threatening someone, but there's no potential for violence. But they see a greaser with a gun, and it's automatic. The, the shooting is automatic. And later, Ponyboy finds a letter from Johnny in a copy of Gone with the Wind that he left for him. And yeah. one of the parts of that letter was basically Johnny saying, like, tell Dally it's okay. Like, you know, yeah. please watch out for Dally for me. And Ponyboy is like, I, I couldn't. Like, Dally was gone before I even found the letter. I wonder yeah. if he would have listened. Like, I wonder if he yeah. would have taken Johnny's advice and sort of, like, maybe changed the track of his life. And that really affected me a lot, just thinking about the fact that, like, Ponyboy didn't get to the letter fast enough to even communicate yeah. what Johnny wanted to communicate to Dally. And I don't know that it would have changed what Dally did, but um, just the fact that, like, these two boys both died within a few hours of each other when they were so close and like meant so much to each other um it was really well written and very emotional 100%. So there's the rumble. I don't think we really need to talk about the rumble. No. The rumble is almost interesting because it feels so, it feels like this big moment in the scene, but it feels so ancillary. Like it doesn't really feel, it's really interesting. It's everything's building up to this rumble, but the only sort of plot purpose it serves is for Pony Boy to get more hurt and Dally to drive him back to the hospital to sort of see, to see Johnny's. So Johnny can basically say the Pony Boy, say the state gold line. There's nothing that really happens in the actual rumble. Though one thing I did want to mention is this really interesting relationship that does sort of emerge between Ponyboy and Randy, who is the friend of Bob. She does really want to get across that the Soches and the Greasers are not that different, but you can't sort of deny that while she gives the Soches like souls, there's this hardness to them that's very upsetting in the sense that they are rich kids there's no reason for them to fight they just they need to fight and they need to attack the greasers to feel this masculinity to sort of feel in control and she does really try to humanize everyone and not and not make the socials some sort of like untouchable villains. Yeah, I think the idea is like life's hard for everybody. Nobody knows the struggle that anybody's going through. It's very easy to to believe that you're the only one and your friends are the only ones that have problems, but it's always more complicated than that. I mean, that's a cliche to us at this point, but I think in the way that it the way that it's told is very it feels fresh. I'm sure it felt very fresh at the time that the book was published. Yeah. Yeah, I think the one sort of counter to it though that that I guess sort of bothered me is the idea like life is hard for everyone but she also doesn't show except really how it is at all hard for the socials it's like the idea I think Randy said something to Pony Boy about how Bob's rebellion was that his parents would let him get away with anything yeah. and just like oh come on like right. you know it's one of those it, it, it is sort of from a moderator's perspective for like uh just like sorry I don't know if there's cursing allowed on the podcast but you're like fuck this guy like yeah. the idea that he was tortured because his parents were so nice to him like excuse me go to hell like, yeah seriously <laughs> neither of us read this book or we think we didn't read this book when we were in high school so I can't ask you if you liked this book more now yeah. than you did then so I guess I'll ask you like did it meet or exceed or not meet your expectations of the book sort of what you knew about it before Oh, I think it totally met my expectations of it. It is sort of as iconic as you 
want it to be. It's very, like, it's remarkably written for mm-hmm. someone who was 16 when she wrote it. It's better written than a lot of stuff that many older people uh, write now, just in terms of how it uses language, how it sort of, like, absorbs the language of the time without seeming without, I mean, I mentioned West Side Story earlier, which is sort of the way, but it seemed, but that is the sort of inauthentic version. Like I love West Side Story, do not get me wrong, but that's the sort of inauthentic version of this story about gangs in the sixties, fifties, sixties, because you know, where that like West Side Story lingo feels sort of grabbed from a couple of people in a Broadway writer's room, like out of thin air, this is rooted in, her life and her story and it it definitely meets its status it exceeded my expectations as I said for some reason I was like a little bit reluctant getting into it but I ended up loving it so highly yeah. recommend for those who haven't read it I will include a link to check it out in the show notes for those who want to order yeah. a copy and check it out Esther before we jump off are there any other books that you've been reading lately that you would want to recommend to our listeners I'm in the middle of on, which I took a break from tips during this this weekend but on earth we were briefly gorgeous the ocean Vuong book which is stunning and also very upsetting to read loved that recommend that i'm sure people have said it before but um the other one i'm sure people have said before is normal people yeah those are those are my like modern fiction <laughs> uh, reading that i think of. the one thing that i wanted to mention though just about this book uh before we go because i do write about movies and i do care about movies yeah let's talk about this It's like one of the reasons I think is the book has sustained the legacy it has is because of the movie that came out in 1983, which Francis Ford Coppola made with very much in tandem with Essie Hinton. Um, He worked very closely with her. She was on set basically every day. But it's also became iconic because it basically launched the careers of every like I, I watched it last night sort of in preparation. Pony by C. Thomas Howell, who actually is not as well known as Rest, but Dahlia's Matt Dillon before he wasn't anything. Uh, Johnny is Ralph Macchio like a year before The Karate Kid. Uh, Steve Randall, who's basically a tiny role that we didn't even discuss. Um, yeah, he's is, not really around in the book much. Yeah, he's Tom Cruise, who's not really around in the movie either. He's just like Tom Cruise. Except for being Tom Cruise. (laughs) Except for being Tom Cruise, like the same year Risky Business came out. Derry is Patrick Swayze before Dirty Dancing. Um, Soda Pop is Rob Lowe at his like peak gorgeousness. Tubit, another character that is sort of ancillary that we didn't really mention, is Emilio Estevez. And this is all before literally the many of their like first big roles. And I think one of the reasons the movie came out in 1983 and sort of sustained this interest around it even more, especially because you had these like new faces of young Hollywood coming up. Oh, and Cherry Balance is Diane Lane, like a 18 year old Diane Lane or maybe 16. She was super young. The cast is ridiculous. It's like hit after hit after hit after hit. I need to watch it. I didn't get to it watch it. It is very, it's a, here's the weird thing. It's not that great. It's a little static in places, um, but it's very, very faithful. Minus a couple of scenes. There's actually a cut of it that is literally the complete novel where it is every scene that's in the novel sort of filmed for the screen. The dialogue is almost ripped from the page. So it's very, it's it's very honest, but it's also sort of made, it, it, it 
did feel, even though it was made in 83, it does have this sort of like golden age of Hollywood sheen to it. But it's really interesting. Like it is a really interesting companion. I do think it's one of the reasons that the book too keeps popping up in the popular imagination because you have like literally this cast of superstars. It's amazing. I'm definitely going to be watching it soon. I'm excited to check it out. Esther, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. It was great talking with you and have a really good day. You too. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hello SSRpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.